All right, Jonathan. Well, first, just want to say again uh, how much I appreciate you taking the time, inviting me into your house and uh, uh, chatting for the next 45 minutes or so. It's great to meet you and welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You got it. Um, history is one of my favorite subjects, always has. And I know history has been a part of your life for most of your life. I uh, wanted to start the interview just by asking you why that is and what about history has has interested you for so much of your time on Earth. Oh, wow. Could you ask a broader question? <laughs> no, I don't want any of these narrow, picky things. I want the we'll big picture. We'll get there. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I can actually answer that question. This is the rare question I can actually answer. Um, I was an urban studies major in college, and I did study some history. But I wouldn't say that I was, uh, uh, you know, deeply connected to it or obsessed with it like I later would become. And it really, the switch went off when I was in the Peace Corps. I joined the Peace Corps after college and I went to Nepal. And I was in a very rural part of Nepal where most people had never seen a, a white person. Hmm. And um, the Peace Corps would send us books that, that uh, from, from Kathmandu hmm. uh, that were in the Peace Corps library. They would send them out and like a, a barefoot dude who was the postman would show up with them. And, you know, I, it was really the first time that I was in, at enough of a remove from the United States that I really started to think about its history. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I was surrounded by, by a very rigid caste system. And of course, the United States had its own caste system, mm. uh, uh, the legacy of which we're still dealing with every day. And it was in Nepal that I first read C. Van Woodward's The Strange Career of Jim Crow, because it was really during that experience that I started to think seriously about the United States. And it was also the place where I started to read about slavery, because obviously slavery was what came before Jim Crow, and I wanted to understand that as well. So I read uh, uh, Genovese's Rule, Jordan Rule. I read Edmund Morgan about American slavery and American freedom, trying to understand how this country that was dedicated in its founding documents to freedom was also dedicated to all kinds of unfreedoms. Mm. So most people who join the Peace Corps and become academicians become anthropologists at the place where they served. So in my own cohort, Back in the day in the early days in Nepal, I can name four or five people that are professors and they are anthropologists of South Asia. Hmm. But it had the opposite experience, uh, the, the opposite effect on me. I absolutely love Nepal. I was intrigued and charmed by it. But um, it was many thousands of years of tradition that were, uh, despite the fact that I lived there so intimately, were going to be, I felt, at a certain level, impenetrable to me. Hmm. But I felt that maybe with America, since that's what I was, I, I would have a chance. And when you began to really delve into the American history, and it sounds like the, the experience in Nepal was formative for you and kind of sparking what would become the rest of your career, what, what did you begin to learn about U.S. history that resonated or still sticks with you to this day? Well, you know, um, uh, a couple pretty obvious things now that weren't obvious to me then. Um, one of them, excuse me, mm -hmm. <clears throat> sorry, no worries. Just the most obvious thing was how new it was, how, you know, um, uh, that, uh, uh, it, it was, uh, it was a country that was really only a couple generations, uh, you know, long. Mm -hmm. I had a friend when I was a kid who said that like their great grandfather knew someone who had known George Washington. I mean, that's just insane. Yeah. 
you know, so how new it was and also, um, how, how it, it, its entire history was a battle over what it meant. Um, that because America was based, was founded on ideas, those ideas have always been hugely under contestation. Mm -hmm. You know, all men are created equal. What does that mean? You know, we all have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Huh? Like happiness <laughs> for whom? Like how? Mm. Um, how is that going to work? Um, and so I think that those are really the questions that really seized me, I think still do. Yeah. <coughs> the, th that, that point in your life, I assume in your 20s when you decided to go to Nepal, what was the attraction to going to that part of the world? What do you think made you do that? And I would love to just hear what your big takeaways were from that experience in your life. Well, um, uh, the most obvious, uh, uh, the most obvious answer for me personally had to do with my family because mm -hmm. my parents were in the Peace Corps in the 1960s. Uh, my father was the director of the Peace Corps first in South, South India and then in Iran. Mm -hmm. So I lived during my elementary school years in Bangalore, India and Tehran, Iran. Uh, and it was really the formative experience of my life, you know, without a doubt, even more so than my own Peace Corps experience. Mm. Just because when you're so young, you are so malleable. Yeah. You know, and I, I learned languages, you know, in three weeks, the way little kids do, yeah. you know. And, um, you know, I think that really inspired me to want to do the same thing. I should also tell you, though, I have two siblings and they didn't do the Peace Corps. Yeah. So I was the only one of the three that did. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had really, really deep and fond memories of India. Um, but India didn't have Peace Corps anymore. In fact, Peace Corps ended shortly after my dad's time there because for a variety of geopolitical reasons, you know, Indira Gandhi imagined India as a non-aligned country. And uh, what that meant was she didn't want to be associated with something like the Peace Corps. Um, but they still had it in Nepal. And in fact, um, Nepal was one of the first countries to have Peace Corps and one of the only ones that had had it all the way through. Hmm. And so that was the country that I selected. And lo and behold, Dan, amazingly, it was where I was sent. One of the things I discovered when I got there was almost n none of the volunteers that were there had selected Nepal. And I later discovered the reason was if you select in Nepal, they just figured you just wanted to smoke weed and climb mountains. <laughs> and we did plenty of that as well. They, they, they were not wrong about that. Uh, but again, I just got incredibly fortunate. And that's, and that's where I went. You know, so, you know, I wanted to see the world. The other thing is I wanted to be a teacher. I knew that. Um, and this would be a great way, I thought, for me to get experience in that and learn how to do it. Hmm. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but one of the great ironies of my career, my subsequent career, is that, um, you know, I've spent it studying and teaching about education, but I've never taken a course about education. I merely teach them. Mm. Um, but it was really also in Nepal where I became an educator. You know, I realized that that, that was how I wanted to spend my life. I didn't know in what context. Yeah. Um, but, you know, educating others and mostly thinking about education uh, and its connection to culture and to history. I know in your interview on, on Rogan, which I loved, um, you were speaking about how, you know, I, I think for Americans, myself included, it, so many of us never really extract ourselves from U.S. culture and embed ourselves in a place in the world with customs that are radically different from the ones that we operate under. You spoke about this to some degree on that podcast, mm -hmm. and I would love for you to speak about how it, if it did, how it changed your thinking, your mind about 
how all people who are raised in the culture just assume, well, this is the way it is and this is the way it should be. Yes. I mean, I, I it absolutely underscored that perception for me. But at the same time, and this was something that I didn't interview, uh, that I didn't mention when I was talking to Joe, it also underscored for me um, my own Americanness. Yeah. So, you know, how different I was. And it in some ways solidified certain views that I had, you know? Um, so, you know, here's an obvious story. I, I, uh, one day I'm, I'm teaching and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the boys and girls sat on different sides of the room, which by the way, was something that happened in this country too, by mm-hmm. the way. Uh, but that's what they did in Nepal. And we made two blackboards that were basically pieces of wood with charcoal on them. <laughs> and with a rock, I would write on the blackboard and, I would put the homework assignment for the boys and the girls on the two different blackboards. And a boy got up and started erasing the, uh, the girls' blackboard before the girls had stopped, uh, had, had, had finished copying it. And um, I screamed at him. And I said, this is a terrible thing. Like, these people have the same right to be here as you. And the reason I know the story is not because I actually remember it. But uh, because about 15 years after I was in Nepal, I get a phone call and I look at the phone and it says Akron, Ohio. And I don't know anyone in Akron. I figured it was a robocall. Yeah. And I pick it up and I hear, John, sir? <laughs> and the only people that call me John, sir, are my <laughs> students from Nepal. And I said, oh, yeah, hello. And it was Govinda. And I remembered him. Uh, he was one of my students. And Govinda told me the story that I just told you. And he said, you know, this is why I haven't called you he had been in Akron for several years because he said I thought you would still be angry with me so I think this story is really interesting on a number of grounds but one of them is I think the things that make you angry are very self-revelatory and I think the point is that the idea of gender equality was very deeply inscribed in me yeah and I wasn't willing to compromise that you know I think that like you said um uh, going abroad does obviously expose you to all kinds of different ways of being in the world. But I think it also reminds you of what I like to call your non-negotiables. Yeah. You know, the ones that you're just, you know, you're not going to change. I mean, another one for me that I remember very profoundly was the way that disabled people were approached or not. So, you know, deaf people were considered lato, which means uh, retarded, basically, or we would say mentally handicapped. And, you know, often you would see them sitting under trees and people would come and mock them. And and um, I just found this abhorrent. Yeah. And I still do. You know, um, I understand that in many parts of the world, like deaf people are not regarded as ethical. Often they're regarded as demon possessed, you know. Um, uh, they're often, you know, put somewhere very far away where other people can't see them. The same goes for people with all kinds of other handicaps and mental illnesses. I get that. Um, but, but, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's just, it doesn't meet my own smell test. Yeah. Yeah. And I think living abroad reminds you of those things too, the things that you're not going to change. This goes to a larger, I think, philosophical question about moral relativism and the and idea, if there is such a thing as universal uh, human rights or uh, what should be um, an equitable way, generally speaking, to approach civility and behavior towards genders and individuals, you alluded to some of this just in the, this past story, but I'm, I'm curious if, I'm sure you've given this a lot of thought, the, 
components of your experience in Nepal that you in that made you um, skeptical of some of the notions that you had been raised upon in the in U.S. culture and other elements that maybe you believe we are living in accordance with the an appropriate way, a decent way to live as as human beings. Well, look, I'm I'm not a relativist, yeah, and I think most people aren't. Um, Cliff Geertz, Clifford Geertz, who was one of the great kind of post-war anthropologists, he has this terrific essay called "Anti-Anti-Relativism," mm-hmm. and basically he analogizes it to the anti-anti-communists. So during the Cold War, right, um, there were people that were anti-communists, but there were also people that were anti-anti-communists, like a figure like you take Humphrey Bogart. Like mm-hmm. Humphrey Bogart wasn't a communist; he actually hated communists, but he also hated the ridiculous things that anti-communists were doing to communists. Um, he was an anti-anti-communist, which did not make him a communist. <laughs> and Geertz's point is that, like, I, I, I can't quote the line here. He says, maybe somewhere on, like, Rodeo Drive or in Times Square, there's an actual real-life relativist. But when you start scratching and you really look at human beings, it's very hard to find one. You know, it's something of a red herring. Yeah. You know, I think almost nobody is truly a relativist. You know, and I think the reason is we're just so deeply programmed by our own histories and our own societies, you know, um, you know, so, you know, I, I did not approve of, you know, the way that people in Nepal treated deaf people. Mm. I still don't, you know, but I will say that I guess I'm a little more wary of imposing my view of that upon them. Mm. That doesn't mean I'm a relativist. You know, that doesn't mean I approve of the way back in the day they approached deaf people. And also, I want to emphasize, I was in Nepal, in a very rural part of Nepal, in the early 80s. Yeah. So A, this is a long time ago, and B, this is in a very rural part of the country. Mm. And I don't want any listeners to imagine that it's static or Nepal is now the same, or even was the same then in different regions. But that's where I was. So I'm not a relativist on that score, but... Um, uh, I think I think one of the things it made me it forced me to do was to reckon with difference and to realize that um, you know I couldn't and probably shouldn't expect or demand that other people share my view. Yeah. I expressed it, yeah, and I have no regrets about that. Um, but I think it's very easy and very seductive to imagine that you know what's best. And I think Americans are really good at that. And if I, there's, there's one other story, sort of an Ur story that, I've, uh, that I tell about this experience that I think really underscores this point. And incidentally, it appears in the preface of the book I wrote about this subject. So one of the books I wrote is called Innocence Abroad, and it's a history of Americans who taught in other countries, hmm. just like I did. Um, missionaries, people in the American empire like the Philippines, and then post-war volunteers like me. Anyway, here's the story. One day I'm teaching and a kid runs into the room and he says, John, sir, your friend is in the valley. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the school was atop what they would call a hill and we would call a mountain, about 6,000 feet. And there were communities in the valley um, that the school served. You know, my kids all walked up this mountain. And you could look down almost in a 360 way and it's a beautiful, bright, 
blue sky day in the Himalayas. We can look in the valley, and sure enough, I can see a white dude down there. <laughs> I mean, people like me had a high visibility in that part of the world. So I see a white dude around there with a couple Nepalis. And so um, we declared a Bita, which means holiday in Nepali. Um, in my limited experience, uh, the, um, uh, the number of Bitas in a nation is awfully inversely related to its level of development. Mm. Uh, uh, so in Nepal, there were a ton of Bitas. There was like a Bita when the king left the country, when the king crossed the equator, when Indira Gandhi was murdered, which he was while I was there, mm. when Andropov died in Russia. The, we, had, we had a lot of Bitas. So we declared a Bita and we started walking down the hill and as we get closer to the river you know um this guy knew walked up to me he says john sir your friend sold me this book only five rupees and i look at it, it's not a book it was a crudely published leaflet but i immediately knew what it was because i saw a guy who looked like greg allman on a cross and as we all know there's some international rule of iconography jesus must always look like greg allman like you know like a this long straight hair and a beard i mean i I've, I've spent some time in the parts of the world that jesus lived and nobody except missionaries actually looks like that but anyway i knew what it was and i could read nepali and under it says like you know, jesus christ bethlehem you know christ was born in bethlehem i'm like huh five rupees well dan i mean Five rupees was what a guy got for chipping away all day on the thing that was supposed to be the tractor road, but would get washed out by the monsoon every year. Mm. And a woman got three rupees, a kid got one. Like it was a day's wage, yeah. you know? And I'm like, hmm. I get a little closer and I can see the guy now. He's standing on a rock and there's like a whole bunch of Nepali guys around him and he's collecting money from them and selling these pamphlets. And I, 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 I walk up to him and I just say, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm leading these people to the Lord. And I said, like, dude, they already have a Lord. In fact, they have about 20,000 of them. And he says, well, Hindus are thieves and murderers. And then it got, like, really ugly. And I could tell he was German from his accent. And I'm mm. like, huh, the Lord. So, like, what does your Lord think of the fact that, like, the Lutheran church and other churches in Germany just rolled over and played dead for Hitler? And he says, well, you know, the Holocaust was bad, but mostly because of like the gypsies that perished, you know. And then I told him to fuck off. Hmm. He told me to fuck off. And this is all in English, of course. And yeah. nobody in this crowd knows what we're saying. But finally, I just, I bluffed and I just said, listen, you know, <clears throat> it's illegal to mission in Nepal, which it was and it is in many parts of the world. And I said, like, if you don't get the fuck out of here, like, I'm going to call the cops. Well, the cops were like three days away and drunk. <laughs> You know, I mean, he didn't know this, however. So he tells me to fuck off again. He hoists his backpack. He starts walking up the mountain. And by then, there's like this big sea of people. And they don't understand what's happening, but they could get the vibe, right? And they're like, you know, you know, and, and, and I heard them talking behind me during all this. I mean, my enduring memory of that time in my life is like being in a golf tournament, you know, <laughs> where, you know, the announcers do this sado sado voice, you know, Tiger Woods is lining up the putt. Like I would hear my life narrated, like he's drinking water. He's putting medicine in his water. Why is he doing that? And you know, so during this time, I would just hear, John Sir doesn't like his friend. John Sir's angry at his friend, you know? And so the guy's walking up the mountain and they t they're like, John Sir, what was that? Like, you don't like your friend. You know, like you had, an, you had an argument with your friend. And I'm like, that's a very bad man. Mm. Like, you know, he doesn't like your dharma. And that sort of means religion or philosophy, yeah. Yeah. you know. Um, and uh, then I hear one guy say, hey, you know, John Sir's friend said if I believe in his God that I just, 
I won't be reborn. I'll just go to heaven forever. And then this other guy says, yeah, that's an awesome dharma. Hey, run after him. Maybe I can get one of those books. Oh, actually, could I buy your book? I'll give you six rupees for it. And Dan, it wasn't until actually I started writing about this subject, maybe 20 years later, that I realized in that case what had made me so angry. In that case, what had made me so angry, I think, is that I had much more in common with my German interlocutor than I was willing to admit to myself at that time, <laughs> right? Um, and what did I have in common with him? We both knew what was best for Nepalis, yeah. right? Um, and, you know, his knowledge, as it were, right, his faith in that was just flat out um, dismissive, right? Hindus are thieves and murderers, right? Mine was all dressed up in this multicultural mumbo jumbo, right? But it was every bit as dismissive, right? And ignorant. I mean, here's the other fun thing about getting on your high horse as an American, is you can just, you don't have to know shit, right? It turns out that there have been like Christians in the subcontinent since 400 AD. Hmm. But I didn't know that. I didn't have to. Right. It's like, this is not you. This is not for you. I know what's for you. I know what a real Nepali is. Yeah. And it's not that. Yeah. And, and that's what in my book I call imperial anti-imperialism. Right. Because in first blush, it's all about protecting them. Right. And they're, you know, like lovely culture, you know, from this evil Western imperialist. Right. But what could be more imperial? than to assume that somebody doesn't have enough autonomy to understand their self-interest. Mm. What could be more imperial than that? Yeah. So it's all dressed up in this sort of protectionist and anti-imperial motif, but it's imperial in its own right. Yeah. I think you're so right. And I think, I mean, in my lifetime, I mean, watching what happened in the Iraq war and the, I think the certainty with which we went in there, assuming that we were, I mean, there were unequivocal evil evils that were going on in that country. Yep. And I think the, for, we forgot about the second and third order consequences of what might happen in that culture. If we remove this yeah. horrendous dictator, yeah. I, I, I'm wondering for you, if you, you know, the difference between the word judgment and discernment, you know, mm. having a perceptive eye, but not a self-certainty about how best to interact how do you how do you yeah. think about this now as somebody who's still interested in the world and interested in other cultures yeah i mean it's a great question and in fact it reminds me of a sort of mantra that i often give to my students um uh you know it's funny if you've taught for a long time it's a little bit like being a parent you do say the same thing over and over again <laughs> uh, your parents would say like 10 things to you over and over again being a teacher is kind of the same. Like we're all limited. We only have a certain number of things to say, mm. you know, but one of the things that I often say to my students, especially this time of year, when you're doing final term, final term papers and grades and all that is like, I would say, look, I evaluate you because that's part of my job. I don't judge you. Mm. And I think they're different because in the case of the evaluation, first of all, I'm not making a kind of a global statement about the student. I always say, and by the way, I'm not actually evaluating you. I'm evaluating your work in this class. And you were not your work in this class, yeah. right? And all I'm evaluating is what I've seen, what you've put in front of my nose, the following papers or projects. That's it. No. And those things aren't you. And I'm not in the world to judge you. I can help you in a couple maybe very small ways, you know, and I can certainly evaluate your work to the best of my ability, mm. right? But I'm not going to judge you. I'm also not going to judge your investment in this class. I'll have to evaluate it. But look, life is complicated. 
Um, you've got all sorts of things going on, especially during a pandemic, and you mm. have other responsibilities and family duties and other classes. You know, if your decision is not to invest as much in this class, um, you know, so long as we all understand that your grade won't be as high, mm. I respect that decision. Like, you're an adult. You can vote in an election. You can die in a war. You know, um, we all have to make decisions, and I respect yours. You know, mm. so it's just, I'm not going to judge you. I'm just going to evaluate you. Yeah. On the flip side, after spending what I assume was a couple years or a few years in Nepal, personally, what did you notice that might be worth other cultures considering in a positive light, maybe influences on your personal life that has, have stayed with you that are aspects of the human existence that might, oh, that we're God. missing or might be beneficial. Where to for start? Us to yeah. I mean, where to start? I mean, I would say the most obvious one for me is just the incredible hospitality mm. and humanity that these people showed in taking me in, you know, um, you know, uh, and making me one of their own. Uh, somebody, Dan, that was so alien to them, right? So unknown, but a human. Yeah. And in a way that was all they needed to know. I mean, look, uh, you know, again, I was in a very remote part of the country. And just to give you an illustration of how alien I was, one night, you know, we're sitting around the fire after dinner. And remember, there's, you know, this is a part of Nepal where there was, you know, no electricity, no running water, right? And and um, Ama, which means mother, who was the, you know, the matriarch of our mm. family, she says, okay, Babu is a baby, you know, youngin. Um, is your house in that direction or that direction? And I said, well, actually, Ama, it's both. And she's like, well, that can't be. If I'm going to Kalunga, which was the market town, three hours away, I go that way, I don't go that way. And so I did, again, what your third grade science teacher did. Like I got an orange, right? I put it next to the fire, right? I pointed to one side and I said, okay, Ama, we're on the dark side now, mm. right? Because, you know, we're away from the fire. My house is... We're closer to the fire, so it's daytime there, right? And and um, uh, uh, she looks at the orange, and then she looks at me, and she says, "So, so do you come through the middle? Is that why you're so white?" Um, and one of my brothers, who fashioned himself like a more educated and sophisticated Nepali, he says, "Like, Amma, don't you know the roads on the outside?" And I found that kind of amusing, too, because, of course, in that part of the world, road means a footpath. Yeah. And I think my brother imagined that there was a footpath around the world, you know. So that's how different I was. And you know what? It did not matter. Hmm. You know, I think especially now in America, there's sort of a fetishization of difference in certain quarters, you know. And I think that that's a problem for a lot of reasons. But, you know, one of them is that even the appreciation of difference requires us to imagine a shared humanity. Mm. If somebody is totally and absolutely alien, you can't communicate with them, which means, by the way, to make common, mm. you know? And I think we are different, all of us, but often those differences do not matter. You know, I think there's a tendency to make them matter too much. Mm. And in Nepal, they just didn't. And another story I love about Ama, about the matriarch, is maybe four months in, she just says to me, says, you know, you know, Babu, I... I love you even though you're Lato. And Lato, again, means mentally retarded. And it's okay. You know, you're just a little slow. 
And that's all right. Because she had never heard somebody speak Nepali as poorly as I did. Not <laughs> yeah. a grown person. Yeah. You know, except for somebody that was mentally handicapped. Yeah. But again, just think of the acceptance and all that. It's like, okay, you know, it's just, it's who you are, but you're one of us. Yeah. You know, and uh, that is something that, that will always stick with me. And just the, just the incredible sense of welcome and of hospitality. And, you know, 20 years later, uh, magically, I showed up there again with my daughter, my older daughter, who had just finished her junior year of high school. And uh, uh, the three-day walk had become about a one-day walk. Mm. We still had to do a bunch of buses, you know, and it took a long time. And then we walked about a day. And the first guy that I see just says, hey, where you been? Like, I haven't seen you around, you know. Oh, great, you brought your daughter, you know, let's drink some rice wine. Yeah. But, you know, two days later, they had an impromptu welcome home ceremony at the school. And, I mean, what can I say? I mean, the three most important days of my life were the day I got married and each of the days that our daughters were born. And this day, it's number four. I mean, without a doubt, it was just spectacular. Yeah. And, um, you know, people giving speeches about, you know, you know, John Sir came to live with us and now he's come back. And I had to give a talk. I can still speak Nepali, hmm. which is, I mean, not that well, but I can still do it. And, you know, I thanked everybody. And then I said, you know, and for me to come here with my daughter. And as soon as I said that, I just started bawling. Yeah. I mean, it was just, just bawling about just the incredible good fortune that I had to, 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 to know these people. You know, and to be loved and accepted by them. Yeah. Um, it's just unforgettable. A lot of this, I have to imagine for you, is just related to community and connectedness with large numbers of people. And you know, we, we are just coming out of the pandemic now as we sit here talking. And, you know, you and I are both busy people. We like to do a lot. And I have had plenty of conversations during this podcast with other people and, and yourself about the role of community as America moves, you know, the world has slowed down so much in the last 13 months or so. And personally, just trying to think of, think through how I want to structure a life that includes some more introverted moments, some, a slower pace at times in my life. And I, you've alluded to this to some degree, but just I have to imagine personally, you're an academic, you work at a prestigious school, you have a lot going on it's difficult to push back against, you know, the frenetic pace of American life. And I, I would be mm -hmm. curious to know if, how you, if you have in any way tried to set up a mentality or perspective or just processes that keep some of that hospitality and welcomeness and maybe a slower pace of life um, in your own life. Yeah. Well, for me, it's not about the pace of life, mm. really, so much as it is about who your contacts are, mm. you know, who, you're, who you interact with and how you forge communities. Because I think that that's what we do. Yeah. I think we make communities throughout our lives, you know, and that's certainly what I've tried to do. And what I've tried to do is um, uh, be a part of as many as I can, hmm. you know, because I think that, you know, community binds us but it also blinds us. That's what's so interesting and complicated about it, mm, right? Mm. It makes us into an us, right? But it also creates a kind of group thing yeah. where, 
you know, we think that we're better or we know the right way. Yeah. Or we're not particularly interested in communicating with people in other communities. And so, you know, um, uh, I have to say that although I'm an academician, I don't feel particularly comfortable in academic communities uh, because I find that they're pretty narrow. You know, there's a pretty limited range of, of political and social understandings and ideologies, you know. And, um, you know, the most depressing single survey um, uh, research that I've seen uh, is about the way that Americans have cut themselves off from people that uh, come from, you know, different backgrounds. Mm. So, you know, uh, if, if you compare Americans in the 1970s and now and you ask them questions like, do you have a friend of a different political party? Do you have a lover of a different political party? a neighbor of a different political party? Have you talked to somebody recently of a different political party? It's a flat line down. Yeah. It's a straight line down vector. But to my point about the academic community, here's the most depressing fact of all. The more formal education you have, the less likely you are to report conversations with people of different political perspectives. Yeah. Which means to me, Dan, that education, formal education, is now playing exactly the opposite role that we like to say it plays. Look, I'm a humanities guy, right? Education is supposed to expose you to things that are not you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. In our country right now, it plays the opposite role. So that's why I've tried to develop this kind of, this these different sets of communities that often come from my work speaking to public audiences. And when I say speaking, I mean in every sense, in op-eds and, you know, in podcasts and everything else, yeah. you know. Um, obviously, I write academic books and I will continue to do so. I believe in that. But that's not the only thing I do. And if it was, frankly, I think it would narrow me. Yeah. And so the reason I do things like I'm doing right now is because they do expose me to other communities and to other audiences that often don't see the world the way I do. And I think that's the way you learn. Yeah. Yeah. I had a fantastic conversation with the historian Jeremy Surrey in Austin yeah, uh, really a couple like weeks him. ago. He's a phenomenal guy. And yeah. we talked about exactly these subjects. I mean, he half and Half Jewish, both, half Hindu. That, that's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He's a Jew. He's a Jew. <laughs> or, or no, no, that's, that's Buddhist. Yeah. Jew-do. Yeah. Jew-do. Yeah, yeah. We, we both live in, you know, a, a liberal growing city in America and we were talking about this exact subject about how and why it is that the country has become so much more siloed. I think technology has played a role in that. I think the general idea that birds of a, it's just birds of a feather flock together that people tend to seek out those who agree with them. And I think this dovetails nicely into the quote that you and I were speaking about before we started recording. And I would love just for the record for you, I know you mentioned this on Rogan's podcast to articulate that and maybe color in some background of this uh, Leonard Hand. I think yeah, learn it, learn it, Hand, which is yeah. a great name. Yeah. yeah. So first of all, I have to give apologies to my older daughter, who's a law student and says that I just talk about learn it Hand way too much, <laughs> but I'm obsessed with it. Right. We all, yeah. we're all fanboys or fangirls at some level. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that's that's what inspires us, right? Are these kind of figures, these models, you know, and these seers. And that's what I think Learned Hand was. I mean, Learned Hand, just for a little background, he's arguably the most important jurist that was never on the Supreme Court. He was considered for it at several times, 
you know, but um, a very important civil libertarian, you know, he was a close friend of Oliver Wendell Holmes. Mm. Um, And, you know, if you look at their biographies, really the story of the growth of civil liberties as a court doctrine is really the story of their communication, Hmm. you know. Um, uh, And so he was hugely influential, I think, much more than most of us have appreciated, sort of in carving out, um, you know, the court doctrine around free speech. But he also became uh, very much of a public figure. And in 1944, in May, on a bright spring day in Central Park, he, had, he, he gave an address at the I Am an American Day. Um, remember, this is wartime, yeah. right? It's World War II. And the ostensible reason for I, I, I Am an American Day was the swearing in of 150,000 naturalized citizens. Wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, according to most reports, there were 1.5 million people there in Central Park that day. Uh, and about a tenth of them were naturalized citizens that that were swearing allegiance, you know, as part of, you know, the ritual of, again, becoming an American. Yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense. And I am an American day. And I read recently that Learned Hand was asked to address the crowd. And he scribbled his remarks on an envelope, just like Lincoln in Gettysburg Address. It's not like he sat down at a typewriter and was like, nah, nah, nah. and he gives it just a two, you can Google it. It's just a two paragraph. Uh, it's a two paragraph speech. You know, but it's beautiful because he points out we're at war. He says people are fighting and dying for this ideal of liberty. And then he says, well, what is it? And it's funny because he says at one point, he says, look, I'm not going to define it for you. But then in a way he does, you know, he gives his definition of it, which isn't everybody's. And I really think that's what he was saying, Mm. right? Mm. He was saying there isn't a single definition. And that's obviously true, right? But Learned Hand says, here's mine. And he says, what's the spirit of liberty? It's the spirit that is not too sure of itself. Mm. Um, uh, and he, he says, that's the spirit we need if we want to understand each other. You know, if you are totally sure of yourself, what's there to understand? Yeah. Like, why would you and I even be talking? Yeah. Right? Um, you know, um, it wouldn't promote any understanding if you were both so absolutely certain of the world. There would be nothing left to learn. Like, I'd be out of a job, you know. Um, uh, I'd have to go to law school myself, you know. Uh, and, and so, uh, and then, and then the, other, the other sort of beautiful part of the speech is he also says, and it is a spirit. It, it lives in us or it doesn't. And he also issues a kind of warning. He says it lives in the hearts of men and women. And I've always liked the fact that he said women because now I think lots of people would. But of course, you know, most of our founding documents are written, you know, just it's all all men are created equal and all that. And I think it was quite radical, actually, of him at the time to include that. He says it lives in the hearts of men and women. Um, And he says, and if it dies, no law and no constitution is going to save it. So remember, he's a jurist, right? And what he's doing with figures like Oliver Wendell Holmes is he's trying to figure out what the legal apparatus should be for, you know, regulating speech, mm. right? And exchange, right? What should be allowed, what isn't? And obviously that's changing. And of course the rules matter and the laws matter. Um, but I think it's quite powerful that a figure like Learned Hand, again, one of the most important legal minds in the history of the United States, we're mm. telling this crowd, listen, it's not all about that, you know? Um, 
uh, you know, what I read him saying is, look, that's just sort of the skeleton. You know, that's just kind of the, 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 the outline, the perimeter, right? Um, but what goes on inside of that, it's not about laws or rules or constitutions, right? It's really about culture. You know, can we sustain that spirit, right? And I think that, to me, is the dominant question for all of us. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think right now, especially, we're living in a very illiberal time, you know, where all of us, wherever we stand, are way too certain of ourselves. Yeah. And I think we're losing part of that spirit, which is why I'm so obsessed with, with hand. It's so applicable to now and the era that we're living in. I mean, that that was quoted almost 80 years ago. And I, yeah. I think it's, it's applicability today with, from my perspective, just the, the purity tests and the self-righteousness and the certainty on both sides yes. uh, are, are ever present. And this is something I was talking to Jeremy about, just the difference, you know, not to paint the past in too rosy of a picture, but I think when there was more of a dynamic interaction among people of different political parties and backgrounds, it emphasized, he was re referencing to, you know, when, when there was uh, service in the military on a widespread yes. level where you interacted with people from backgrounds that you otherwise never would have. Right. And you came to understand probably two things fundamentally. I disagree with a lot of what these people believe, but more than that, I respect them as an individual. And we're all Americans, by the way, and human beings. Like, I am an American, right? Yeah. I mean, that was the, the name of the, the, the ritual, right, that Learned Hand was addressing. Um, but yeah, that we share something profound, you know, whatever our other disagreements. And, you know, we all, I, I think there, one, one, of, one of the questions I often say to my students is, let's suppose that you could just have any law passed, just by snapping your fingers, mm. it could, any law. And people say very interesting things, sometimes about guns, sometimes about abortion, depending on that. And then inevitably somebody will ask me, and for it, it's very easy for me, national service, man, I would vote for that in a moment. Like you turn 18, you've got to do two years. If you want to do the military, we'll let you, but we won't require it. Mm. Um, but, you know, you will go, you'll work in a senior citizen home or you'll like work in a national park um, you know, uh, uh, you'll work in a daycare. Um, you know, there have been different uh, um, laws like that floated. And obviously, we have many versions of it with things like America Corps. Yeah, yeah. Um, Senator Coons, especially from Delaware, has been really vocal recently about trying to expand it, like post-pandemic. Mm. Um, but, uh, God, I would vote for that in a nanosecond. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like now would be a, it, the time is right no for that. No kidding. And um, I, I, I just, I, I am in favor of that idea as well. I think it would be very, very useful for the country. Um, this, I think, also dovetails nicely into the book that I that you just wrote that I want to talk about. It, mm. it, it's sort of our final segment here. I think you and I could probably talk for hours and hours <laughs> about a lot of different subjects, but okay. I. I heard you mention this on the Rogan podcast as well. Something that resonated with me. I, what always, why I always voted democratic when, and felt just an inner allegiance to the democratic party when I was a kid was because they were the, from my pers perspective, they were the party of the underdog. They were the party of the less fortunate. They were the party mm -hmm. of, um, gay rights when gay rights was not cool when I was a little kid. Yeah. 
And perhaps more than anything else, they were the party historically of freedom of expression, freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. And you noted in the interview with Joe, just that, you know, if you are an individual with no wealth, no connections, it's often the case that the only power that you do have in this country is your power to speak or write and write essentially Mm -hmm. the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It has been disconcerting for me as someone who has always voted for Democratic presidents to witness what appears to be happening in academia. I graduated from college in 2006. There was probably some version of this on a minor scale where individuals who disagreed with the zeitgeist or the you know group think of the university were not particularly welcomed. But I don't remember there ever being protests against individuals who had dangerous ideas. That was the point of going to college. <laughs> I, you've been in the academic environment for a long time. What, what happened? What, what are you witnessing and what drove you to to write the book in the first place? They're probably all related. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, just one thing before we go here. Um, one thing that I really want to emphasize is that the threats to free speech come from every side. Yeah. Understanding you're now asking about my side, yes, like the left-wing yeah. academic side. Well. But, yeah. but but I do think it's really important to underscore that during the same, these past couple of years, you know, we've seen state legislatures address bills saying you can't teach the 1619 Project or you can't teach critical race theory. Mm. Like, what is that if not cancel culture, mm. right? So look, cancel culture is real and this illiberal turn is real. But the big point here is it's bipartisan. Mm. And I just want to emphasize that. So you turn on Fox News and they talk about cancel culture and they're right and it's a problem. But all they underscore is what we're about to talk about, which is, you know, the academic form. They rarely tell you that Trump engaged in all kinds of forms of cancel culture. Mm. Like he, you know, he threatened like cable news take away the licenses of cable news, even though, of course, the FCC doesn't license cable companies. But. You know, it's a small detail. One other quick note just about that. I mean, that I I always I only noted towards the end of his presidency where he was the he was the the political figure who was supposed to be opposed to identity politics and would lambast Democrats as a monolith throughout (laughs) the entire duration. The Democrat Party always not the Democratic Party, the Democrat Party. Yeah. So it's a little rich, right? You know, for people like that to be complaining about censorship when they're engaging in it. But at the same time, they are not wrong. Mm. Right. Um, And I think, you know, again, if I could, my fantasy is just for both teams to say, yeah, we've both been doing it. We're not just going to accuse the other team of doing it, even though the other team has been doing it. Right. But we've been doing it, too. So we're going to lay down our arms now to cut to your question, like what happened in academia? You know, um, I think a couple things are really important. And I'm sure you and Jeremy talked about this, Um, you know. I, I think that, uh, you know, over the past, especially 20, 30 years, I think that the professoriate, um, you know, it became a kind of ideological monolith. Mm. Um, we're not these wild-eyed Marxists you hear about on Fox. But what we are are Obamites and Sanderites. Mm. That's what we are, mm. right? We don't want the violent overthrow of the state. We want, like, Obamacare and gun control. Right. But, you know, if you haven't noticed, there are plenty of people in America that don't want Obamacare or gun control. Right. Um, uh, They are not well represented where I live, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And I think there are a lot of reasons that that happened. Um, But, you know, in the professoriate, 
I think, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, I'll just have you know that sometimes you have colleagues that say, well, the reason professors or Democrats is we're smart and the other team isn't. This is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And in fact, people have studied this and shown that it's wrong. Mm -hmm. um, John Shields and Josh Dunn wrote this great book called Passing on the Right, which is about the handful of Republican professors. It's yeah. a great title. And basically, they, they rule out all that. They show all that is not true. And basically, the reason there's so few um, Republican professors is at a very early age, able students, able Republicans look at the landscape and they understand that it's hostile to them. So they self-select out basically, you know, in most fields. Mm. There, there's a little bit of difference across fields, but not much. I read an anthro recently, 97% Democrat, 3% Republican. And like, who are those 3%? Like, my heart goes out to them. I have only empathy. Like, how shitty to be one of those Republican anthropologists. Um, uh, and, and, and it feeds on itself, right? All this stuff does, right? I mean, it, it's, you know, like any social system, it's a self-fulfilling enterprise, right? Um, and, and so, you know, the more you're exposed to the monoculture, right, the harder it is to see a way out, mm. the more likely you are to bring in others that share the same monoculture. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it becomes a, a very closed world, mm. you know. And, um, you know, look, 81 million voted for my team. That's a lot. It's the most ever. But 74 million voted for the other team, which incidentally is the highest number of ballots ever cast for an incumbent president in the United States. Mm. And look, I, 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 I try to be as honest as I can. I yield to nobody in my loathing of Trump. Mm. All right. But I've also heard colleagues say that anyone who voted for Trump is either morally or cognitively warped. And I think that's a poisonous idea um, that that just doesn't withstand scrutiny. Like, dude, 74 million people, they're either dumb or evil. Like every single one of them. Like, would you let your students get away with that sort of assumption on a paper? I hope not. It just doesn't withstand scrutiny. It's just ridiculous. But that's where we live. And again, it, you know, it feeds upon itself. And instead of with learned hands saying, well, hold on, hold on. Um, like, are we so sure that all these people are awful? Isn't it possible they had some good reasons for casting their ballots the way they did? What could we learn from them, right? How could we better understand them, right? I mean, it, it, that, even that line of questioning, mm. you know, um, is, uh, I think, increasingly rare. Um, and, and um, you know, I'll also say that, um, you know, um, uh, I, I think that there are very, very clear disincentives to raising questions like that. Because in a highly polarized environment, if you do, there's going to be an assumption that you're playing for the other team. Yeah. Why would you even ask these questions? Yeah. You know? So where I work, I mean, there are people that think I'm a Republican. Yeah. Which I think is just hilarious. And again, to be totally clear, I don't give a shit. I mean, I, like if they think I'm a Republican, that's okay. But I do find it hilarious just because I'm a dyed-in-the-world Democrat, you know. I'm, but I'm also an educator. I'm also a citizen. 
And Dan, I don't want to be surrounded by people that think exactly the same way I do. Mm. I don't think that's a good formula for education or for democracy. Mm. Um, but that's what we that's what we have created. You know. In your book, but before we get to your book, one one idea that I've been thinking about recently is just how this happens to really smart people. And I do think to some degree, it's almost like the cleverer you are, the more susceptible you are to confirmation bias because you Possibly. can just, just yeah. steamroll through reasons as to why you're right <laughs> and lose insight. You know, and also as you, as you were mentioning that it, it reminded me, I, I, this quote is often attributed to Einstein. I don't know if it's actually Einstein who said this, but something akin to imagination is more important than knowledge yeah. when you know making a statement like 74 million people are you said uh, dumb more, or evil, right? Yeah. That you know, just if you spend a minute of your time creatively thinking about why might a decent citizen in the U.S. have voted for Trump, yeah, there should be you know, imagining someone outside of your own exact lifestyle and life history can begin to yield potential reasons from my perspective as to why you might yeah. come upon that. And, and look, it's not new. I just think it accelerated. I mean, I remember this from 20, 30 years yeah. ago. I mean, I remember I wrote a column after Bush v. Gore where I said, look, um, I didn't vote for Bush. I think he's going to be a terrible president, which I actually think he was. I don't like the way the Supreme Court adjudicated this. But I also think that my workplace would be a more educational, interesting place if there was at least one person that voted for Bush yeah. or think that the court ruled in the right way. Yeah. And I got all this email saying, well, of course we didn't vote for Bush. Like, we're smart. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, you know, Milton Friedman and Saul Bellow voted for Bush. Like, maybe you're smarter than Milton Friedman and Saul Bellow. I'm not. <laughs> I'm just not. You yeah. know, it, like it can't be that. Yeah. Right. It just doesn't make sense. This is something that I think you touched on, which I think is we are social animals. And I think to your point, if you are a, a talented, intelligent, conservative young person who goes into the prestigious halls of academia at a place like Penn or the other great schools in the country, you pick up on those small tells and signals that you oh, and your ideas are not welcome here. Absolutely. And, you know, after the 2016 election, I had people come out to me in, in my office, mm. you know, that they had voted for Trump. And I'm like, look, say this in class. Mm. We'll all learn something. And their view was like, easy for you to say, dude. Yeah. Like, do you know how I'll be vilified? And they're not wrong. I mean, you may have read at Bryn Mawr. I mean, this is awful. Um, this happened during the 2016 election. A kid at Bryn Mawr sees there's going to be a Trump rally, which was out in Westchester, just west of Philly. Hmm. And she posts somewhere on social media just saying, hey, is, is anyone going to the, you know, to the Trump rally? And if so, could you give me a ride? And she was so harassed and demonized on social media that she dropped out of school. <laughs> You know, people, you know, saying, you, you, you racist piece of shit. Why don't you just go and die? And I'm going to come to your dorm and assault you and everything like that, you know? Yeah. And, and again, this is at a liberal university with a small L. Like, really? You know? Yeah. Um, so the kids are not wrong. And I want to be really clear. You know, I'm not. I, I get it. You know? Like, I, 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 I understand, you know, especially people that are 18, 19 years old, they're very peer-oriented. Like, who wants to be vilified like that? Yeah. You know? And so I get it. 
This strikes me as something that we talked about briefly before we started recording, which is just so much of the, uh, from my perspective, the historic cultural energy that went into religion is now being placed in the realm of politics. I think that's the fear. And the certainty, the self-certainty, the judgment, the in-group, out-group mentality, that void seems to have been filled by the Democrats and the Republicans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, And, you know, there's so many different examples of it, especially in academic life. I mean, how about this language of allyship? Like, who's an ally? What does that really mean? It means who's on our team, Mm. right? You know, um, uh, instead of, you know, um, uh, you know, you know, who, who do we draw into the circle? Mm. Who do we include within that circle of decency? Yeah. Someone who's an ally. Yeah. Someone who's isn't, uh, uh, right. You know, like 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 you 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 don't you go to a different church or you don't go to one at all at, at all, but you're not going to be part of us. Yeah, like we are not going to include you right in the circle of people that we think are fully human. Yeah, this um, reminds me of the work being done by Jonathan Haidt, who I'm sure you're familiar yeah, with. Yeah, he's a and, friend from NYU. He, days, I, yeah. I, I, he's brilliant, and yeah. I think some of his insights about what's going on psychologically in the culture are 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 spot on. Um, and I, I think he he has that. Uh, I think a similar view to what what we've been talking about related to what's happened culturally with with the um, Democrats and the Republicans and just politics in general. Last subject I want to talk about, um, is, is your book and what you're hoping to achieve with it. Maybe a good segue into the subject generally is to start with the figure of, I think her name is Mary Beth Tinker and speak to her story and how she fits into this project that you embarked upon in the book that you published. Yeah, well, that's the story, actually, that begins the book. Mm. And Mary Beth Tinker, for your listeners that don't know, she was the 13-year-old kid that wore the black armband to middle school in Des Moines, Iowa in 1965 to protest America's involvement in the Vietnam War. And that involvement was radically escalating during that time. And she was sent home. And she eventually, she and two other kids lawyered up. And this, this case became uh, Tinker v. Des Moines. Mm. And in 1969, the Supreme Court upheld their right to wear those armbands with uh, Justice Fortas's famous majority opinion saying, neither students nor teachers shed their First Amendment rights to free expression at the schoolhouse gate. Um, and and um, uh, Mary Beth Tinker isn't that much older than I am, and she's become a friend. She's an absolutely terrific person. And a couple of years ago, I invited her to come to my class at Penn, and she told her story, and um, she actually brought the armband that she wore. She carries around with her, and she has, puts it on students and everything, and she's terrific. And um, uh, then the Q&A starts, and the, the kids say, look, you know, Ms. Tinker, you were fighting the good fight. Like you were fighting the war in Vietnam. This like Ben Shapiro clown, this Milo Yiannopoulos figure, you know, like uh, they just hurt people. They just harm people. Why should we allow them to speak at all? And, you know, Mary Beth Tinker in a very kind way um, uh, just wasn't having this. And she said, look, you know, at the middle school I went to in Des Moines, there were kids that had brothers and uncles and dads that were dying in Southeast Asia. Like, you don't think they were offended? You don't think they were hurt by this snot-nosed kid 
um, wearing this symbol that says their loved ones were risking everything, risking their lives for a lie? Like, you don't think that hurt them? So he's not denying the hurt, not at all. But what he is arguing is that once that becomes the barometer for what speech is allowed and what isn't, forget about Mary Beth Tinker mm. and forget about free speech because it does hurt. It absolutely does. You know, meaningful speech hurts. It jolts us, you know, um, uh, out of our preconceptions, you know, and it often touches and indeed insults things that are sacred to us. Mm. It does, you know. But again, if you decide that you're going to ban speech that hurts, you're going to ban everything mm. um, eventually. And, you know, the students took that in and they said, well, you know, isn't this really just a question about power? Like this whole free speech thing is just an abstraction, right? Basically, free speech is something that powerful people use, um, which is why white guys like Zimmerman love it, right? <laughs> because it lets them like say terrible things, right, that actually hurt minorities who need protection from this terrible speech. So they have power and they use this free speech doctrine, right, to exert that power over people that have less. And Mary Beth didn't have that either. You know, she just says, look, you know, in Des Moines, Iowa in 1965, I was a 13-year-old girl. I didn't have power. Speech was the only power that I had. And that's really why we wrote the book. When I say we, it's illustrated with cartoons by Signet Wilkinson, who's one mm. of the greatest cartoonists in the history of America. Mm. Um, and and uh, the real reason we wrote the book, I think, is you know both of us are like these aging Democrats. And the book is really a missive to people that are younger than we are, which is, by the way, almost everyone. <laughs> um, but you know, I, um, I, I, you know, I have two daughters in their 20s, you know, brilliant, beautiful, fantastic people. And they have a very different view of this issue than I do. I think there's a big generational split on this one. And I think the poll literature clarifies that. Hmm. Um, because they see free speech as a very dangerous thing and free speech that harms minorities, women, gays, right? And, you know, to go back to Mary Beth, I have no doubt that there is some speech that harms them, right? But, and here's the larger historical point, what we have to remember is how free speech was the key for all of those groups to challenge their circumstances and to challenge the oppression that they were experiencing, which is why all the great warriors for social justice in our history have also been free speech warriors. You know, Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony, Eugene Victor Debs, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., the reason is they understood that they needed speech to critique what they were experiencing. Mm. And Frederick Douglass called it the great moral renovator of society. Yeah. And it was the sine qua non. It was what he needed more than anything else. You take that away, you can't make the case against slavery. Yeah. Why? Because you can't speak. Yeah. Because speech and thought are synonymous, right? New right. speech and new thought are new ideas. And, it, and it, that, yes. that's the innovation that can change a culture and can change a people. Right, right. And, you know, um, uh, I think the gay rights story is really compelling in this zone because, you know, the very short story on gay rights in the 20th century is that 
gay and gay themed publications were heavily censored mm. uh, by the government. Shouldn't surprise us because gays were and gay activity was. And then, you know, there were a couple of very important federal and Supreme Court cases in the 50s and 60s where, you know, the government had tried to keep like a bodybuilding magazine out of the mails because bodybuilding magazines were popular among gay men. And ultimately, the court said, you can't do that, mm. right? You know, these publishers, they have a First Amendment right to express what they want. And those decisions were hugely important in kind of sparking this great burst of gay literature, which in turn was a huge engine for the gay rights movement itself. Yeah. I mean, just think about it. I mean, think about a population that's been so stigmatized and demeaned, how important it is to have these publications to help them connect in, in every way. Yeah. And that's what happened. You know, I mean, no free speech. I won't say no gay rights movement, but probably not. Yeah. You know, because again, that's what they needed to get the word out, literally and figuratively. Last question I want to ask you, and before I ask this question, this is an idea that Haidt brought up, or I guess an observation that he mentioned once, I remember in, a, in an interview I saw him give, which was that if you look at the language, look at the speech of people like Martin Luther King in their attempts to revolutionize our society, it was amazingly inclusive. Yes. It was speaking to our humanity, not our divisions of race. 100%. And I, I think that is something that he had hit, he was so right in so many of his observations and so many of his, of his aspirations that I, I think it would behoove all of us to go back and watch some of what he actually said, mm-hmm. how he tried to inspire the better angels of our humanity. Right, at, right. At its core. And, and also how he... Um, how, how he refracted all of this through the American story and the American founding documents. That's right. Right? Yeah. They could, again, bring us together. Yeah. I mean, what's more inclusive than the Declaration of Independence? Yeah. And this was Frederick Douglass, too, right? I mean, his most famous piece of oratory was the Fourth of July speech, right? Mm. Rochester, New York. And, you know, except arguably for the Gettysburg Address, probably the most important piece of speech of the 19th century. Hmm. So, you know, he gets up there and he says, okay, he reads the Declaration. He says, look, Um, You know, I wasn't born yesterday. I know that the person who wrote these words, you know, all men are created equal and doubt, blah, blah, blah. I know that he wasn't including, to use your metaphor, me in that imagination. Mm. Right. But he should. Yeah. Right. And so should all of us. Um, You know, we have to love this ideal. So I would go even farther than Hyde. I would say it isn't just that the language is inclusive. It's patriotic. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, And it's patriotic because the American ideal is an inclusive one. And I would say the only way we can critique our departures from that vision is by loving the ideal itself. Yeah. And I think that's what I take away from Douglas and King, Mm. right? Different figures talking in different times, but both like trying to rejuvenate these documents, right? And make them true to Mm. their words, right? make us love the words and also use our departure from the words to call us to make them real. Yeah. Uh, That's a very, very well put. Um, Final, final thing, final question I want to ask you about is uh, related to free speech in, in where we find ourselves now. What in your judgment has caused this pushback? I mean, you were giving anecdotes about your students. What has caused this, panic or this disregard for freedom of speech in your experience as an academic and what is your assessment of 
where it's headed. Are you optimistic, pessimistic about the trajectory here? Uh, well, well, okay, let's take these one by one. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's hard to pinpoint a cause, Dan, but I think that ironically and sadly, I think one important engine and one important context for all this has been actually the rise of mental health awareness and mental health services. And I say this with a heavy heart because I'm a huge supporter of those services. Mm. And I think the mental health revolution, especially on our campus, has been hugely salutary. Mm. So much more awareness, again, so much more effort and discussion and services. Um, but I think, unfortunately, that paradigm has been applied also to politics in ways that are hugely unhelpful, I would say both for mental health and for politics. So what's happened, I think, because the mental health metaphors are so powerful, that if you say something I disagree with, instead of saying, well, I disagree with it for the following reasons, or have you thought about this evidence, or I have a different perspective, what you say is, no, that statement harmed my psyche. Mm. Um, you know, it isn't just that I disagree with it, mm. right? It's that it actually harmed me. And that's just a cul-de-sac. I mean, you know, I often say to my students, look, if you're microaggressed or triggered by something that I said, I've got essentially one thing to say in reply. I'm sorry. I mean, really. And, and I would be. I don't like harming people or offending them, you know. But here's the problem. I mean... There's no place to go after that. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's maybe I could ask why they were triggered or microaggressed, but I couldn't say they weren't. I can't look into their souls and say that. And when I give this rap to my students, they often are like, you know, you're denying our feelings. And that's pr precisely the opposite. It's the undeniability of their feelings that makes this such a poor venue for discussion. Hmm. It's precisely because I can't deny it. I think real discussion requires a kind of denial, if you want to use that metaphor, right? It's like, no, no, I think you're wrong, and here's why. Can't do that in this mental health realm, hmm. you know? And so I think that those metaphors have been stretched to places where they shouldn't go. And I think that they've really inhibited our ability to understand each other. Because hmm. again, who, who wants to harm somebody else or like trigger or microaggress them? I don't. Hmm. Like, do you? Hmm. You know? Um, uh, but I mean, uh, it's very hard to go to your second question to be very optimistic at this point because these metaphors are gaining ever more power. And we at the university are not making any kind of sustained effort to challenge them. And I'll give you one very, I think, pregnant example. Take microaggression. So I don't want to go too deep in the weeds here, but it's a term that was actually coined in 1970 by a psychiatrist, African-American guy at Harvard named Clarence Pierce. And again, it was to connote these very small, often unintended insults, each one of which may not... Um, have any real effect, but cumulatively take their toll on, again, a minority psyche. And apparently nobody paid this very much mind until this idea was revived in the aughts by a guy named Daryl Wing Su, who teaches at Teachers College, an Asian-American guy. 
And it really took off after that time, I think in part because of, you know, all these connections to mental health and all that. Well, um, it turns out that people who've studied microaggressions have been unable to find that they're real. And what do I mean by real? I mean two things. First of all, they've been unable to document that the alleged targets of microaggressions have any kind of consensus on whether they're microaggressions. <laughs> all right. Um, secondly, there is no sustained evidence for the thousand cuts thesis, like the thousand cuts idea. They've been, if you've been exposed to a lot of these, it's injured you. And again, you know, maybe we'll find that evidence in the future. But here's why I'm not very optimistic. Whenever I've suggested at my institution or any other that we introduce this literature as part of the microaggression training, nobody wants to do it because that train has left the station. And this strikes me as an almost perfect, albeit awful, illustration of the really, really dangerous place where we're at, which is, you know, we're supposed to be critical because everyone's supposed to be that. You know, critical legal studies, critical thinking, you know, critical about everything except the critical shit we're doing right now, right? Which has essentially been placed outside of critique. Um, even though there's a lot of substantive evidence suggesting that it's not doing what it's supposed to do. The scariest idea, if you're talking about the future, is perhaps if we do this enough, then people will start feeling the thousand cuts. Mm. Maybe there will be more consensus on how evil these terms are. So microaggressions aren't real yet, but give us time, right? Um, if we just keep saying this over and over, saying, A, don't say that because it's going to harm somebody, right? Maybe more people will feel that harm. How is that good for them or for us? Um, uh, I don't think it is, but I think that's where we are now. Man, <laughs> I, 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 that is sobering i think it to, is. to think, really think about sobering. because these are this is the future of the country who is being yes it is given these sort of lessons and, and almost encouraged to be offended oh and, and to, i can assure you that some people listening to this what i just said will say they were microaggressed by that critique of microaggressions and again i won't deny that their feelings are their feelings right but I will deny that this is a healthy or useful way to have political and social discourse. I will deny that. The concern for me is the, is the observation you just made, which is that the train has already left the station, that there is no internal dis momentum or energy to self-correct here. I don't believe there is. It's too scary because the stakes are so high, right? I mean, look, Here's the other thing I think it's really important because I am being so critical of some of these interventions. I just want to say that I think in almost all the cases, the people behind these interventions have really good motives. You know, I'm not here to question those. Um, racism and other kinds of bigotry are real. Um, there are a lot of people on our campuses that don't feel fully included. And I think the people promoting these interventions in very good faith want to correct that. Hmm. But to use your metaphor about correction, they're not open to corrections of their correction. Hmm. That's the problem. Yeah. You know, 
um, that these interventions have essentially become almost sacred rituals, right? And you're supposed to follow them. You're not supposed to critique them. Um, and I think that is really dangerous. It, again, this strikes me as like a religious move. In yeah, some in many ways it absolutely is, you know. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, I think that um, most liberal religionists that I know think that um, critique of their religion is a healthy thing. Hmm. You know, it gives them a better purchase on what they actually believe yeah. instead of simply what was told to them by a parent or a cleric or whatever. Hmm. But we have not gotten to that place yet in our own religion, right? Um, a liberal religionist, if indeed this was a religion, would welcome the critique of microaggressions. Hmm. We're not there. Well, on that note, um, <laughs> on that depressing I, I, note. I want to. I want to just. Say, I I think ideas are some of the most important things in the world. They they're what drive culture and in history. And I really admire you speaking clearly um, in the way that you do. I'm sure this has not been incentivized in many ways socially <laughs> for you to to do this but well, in in some ways that's true you know and but but i also don't want to come off as negative or whining yeah. i mean i know that i've ticked off a lot of people and again i don't like that you know that's that's not how i get my jollies mm. right but i think you have to stand up and say what you think you know and frankly not enough people are doing that yeah. because it is scary yeah I hope you keep doing that. And I, I, I think that um, the easy option in those contexts when you're swimming against the tide is not to say anything. And that Just is to how do the free nod. speech died. Yeah. 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 Um, I would love to do this again at some point down the road when we both are in the same city, but I'd be delighted in close. I I just, I again want to say how much I appreciate what you're doing and the books you're writing and, and just the time. This has been an amazing conversation. I I wish you the best of luck with everything that you do in, in, uh, in your career. Thank you, Dan. And thanks for taking the time to do this. It was fun. Yeah. Likewise. All right.